when you think of heaven, what do you imagine? Uh, do you think of that stereotypical scene of the, the togas, the clouds, the floating, the harps, that kind of thing? Uh, I know when I was younger, when I would think about heaven, it was mainly about like what it would be like for me. Like, how awesome is it going to be? <laughs> that was basically what I was thinking. What would I be able to do there? I remember asking my parents, am I going to be able to fly in heaven? Like, sell me on this deal. Am I going to fly? Uh, do I get a hoverboard when I walk into heaven? Is that like the, the prize for getting in? Because that sounds like a good deal if that's true. Um, I think uh, as we grow and mature and under, our understanding of God deepens, uh, as the Holy Spirit transforms us, uh, our understanding of heaven matures as well. As we look at scripture, we see that eternal life uh, is not heaven because of the awesome things we get to do there, though we will do some pretty awesome things there. Uh, that's not what makes it heaven. It's heaven because of who is there. That's what makes it heaven. That's what makes eternal life uh, what it is. Yes, we will be reunited with lost loved ones. That will be a joy that's hard to imagine. But even more than that, the, just the mind-blowing reality of being in God's direct presence, experiencing uh, his love, relationship with him uh, in a life free of pain and suffering and loss and death. Heaven is much more uh, than a place where our personal preferences are just met all the time. Uh, it's a place where God's eternal plan comes to be, where the all-powerful, almighty, infinitely loving creator has things exactly how he wants them and takes us along for the ride forever. When I look back on my life and thinking about heaven, uh, I think it's been pretty small and kind of selfish. You know, it'll be fun for me. I think that's basically what it's been, but it's so much bigger than that and more beautiful. Why am I talking about heaven? I'm talking about it because the prophets continually pointed forward to God's eternal plans. They foreshadowed and predicted the work of Christ on the cross and how God's ultimate plan would be accomplished through Jesus. And knowing God's eternal plans radically changes our lives now. How we view ourselves, how we view God, how we prioritize our life. Zephaniah, the prophet, uh, gives us a glimpse of God's eternal plans uh, for those who know him. But we've got to understand a little bit about Zephaniah's world to see clearly the vision that he was putting in front of us. So if you brought your Bible with you, uh, turn to Zephaniah. I'm going to put here on the screen uh, where you can find it. It's, it's really close to the end of the Old Testament, uh, right after Habakkuk, before Haggai. Zephaniah. We're going to have it on the screens as well. Um, if, if you're visiting with us uh, and you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those Bibles on the table uh, home with you. That would be our, our gift to you. Uh, I want to say something briefly about the role of the prophets. We've touched on this throughout the series, um, but prophets like Zephaniah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Elijah, um, they were religious leaders in their day, but they were not really... Uh, kind of formalized leaders. They didn't have like an official role with the government. They weren't part of the official kind of temple priestly operation. They were a little bit outside of that. 
they were these kind of charismatic figures gifted by God to, to speak for him. And in many cases, they were speaking truth to power. They were speaking to the people and to the people's leaders, the priests and the kings, uh, about the ways that they were departing from God's will for the people of Israel. Because there really was this whole power apparatus that the prophets were not a part of. You had the kings of Israel, the political power, the nobles around them. You had the priests at the temple uh, that oftentimes kind of cozied up with the kings. And the prophets were not really in those circles. In fact, a lot of kings were quite annoyed by the prophets and what they were doing. And so um, the prophets were speaking about the future, yes, Um, But often they were speaking about the present as well and calling people to repentance and back to a relationship with the Lord. And it's during the reign of the last few kings of Israel that Zephaniah uh, lived and ministered. Um, It was a time of fear and uncertainty. They were facing uh, an impending invasion by the Babylonians, and um, there was a lot happening. And so I want to jump into it with you. We're just going to read the first verse here, Zephaniah 1.1. It says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Highlight during the reign of Josiah, if you're taking notes. Um. If we're going to understand Zeph's message, don't call, care if I call him Zeph. I, I just feel like his mom probably called him Zeph. Um, so last service, I accidentally called him Jephaniah. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I mess it up. Uh, Zephaniah. Okay, so to understand his message, uh, we have to understand the political situation, what was going on. And when the book starts out and lists all these names, they're not there to bore us. They're there for a reason. Because the writer wanted us to know the exact political and cultural moment that what Zephaniah was saying was happening uh, during. Okay, so um, I want to give you just a quick overview. These are the last kind of three major kings um, of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And you'll get a sense of what's going on in the culture. So first you had Hezekiah. He's living in the kind of 700s BC. He's this great king of Israel. He came to the throne at 25. And he was so faithful to the Lord Uh, scripture describes there was nobody like him before or after in terms of the kings of Israel. Uh, Many kings prior to him had abandoned the Lord and was worshiping idols, and and Hezekiah really made an effort to return the people of Israel to faithfulness in God. And uh, so he led the nation faithfully back toward worshiping the one true God, and he ruled for 30 years. Then his son comes to power, uh, Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 when he became king, And uh, he went the complete opposite direction. Uh, He tried to promote idol worship and worshiping pagan gods and goddesses. He practiced sorcery, it says, and and astrology, even child sacrifice, which was part of some of these um, uh, pagan religious uh, rituals. Uh, He alienated the people from God. And it describes him as the worst of all the kings of Israel. There's no one who did worse than him before or after his reign. Um, No one matched his depravity. He ruled for 55 years like that. So then his son comes to the throne. I didn't put him up here because he only lived two years. He was assassinated. His name was Ammon. And then Ammon's son, Josiah, comes to the throne. Josiah was eight when he became king. Uh, And a little bit into his reign, when he was 26, 
he decided the temple needed some renovations. So he's dealing with all these contractors, basically. You know, go take care of the temple and let me know how it's going. And they discover in the temple uh, a copy of the, the scriptures, the, the law that God had given Moses. And no one had read it. I mean, they had gone so far away from the Lord in the previous reign of Manasseh and others, that, that when they discovered it, it's as if they were reading it for the first time. And so these people are reading it, they're saying, the king, Josiah, has got to see this. And they bring the scriptures to Josiah, and he goes, whoa, what are we doing? Like, we're not doing any of this. They were so far gone, like no one had a copy of scripture. Josiah uh, recovers this and leads these great reforms, like his great-grandfather Hezekiah, to lead Israel back to a place uh, of faithfulness. And it's during the reign of Josiah that Zephaniah was alive and ministering in Israel. And so he was a part of this era, this time of pendulum swinging between faithfulness and faithlessness in Israel when uh, Hezekiah and Josiah are trying desperately to lead the people of Israel back uh, toward a relationship with God. And they're trying kind of political solutions to this. You know, we're going to kind of make it a rule in Israel. I'm the king. I can say you have to do this. And they are finding, these kings, that uh, you can't really find a political solution to spiritual brokenness. You can help, but really you can't. You can't legislate a heart into loving God. And this is what they are grappling with. Israel needed transformation from the inside out, and so do we. The end game for the people of Israel in Zephaniah's time is the same end game for us. God's message to them is his message for us. It's the same story. And so I want to keep going and learn what that message is. Verse 4, Zephaniah 1.4. God says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every, every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle three things we just read. Baal, um, starry host, that's in verse 5, and Molech, that's uh, also in verse 5. This is God's diagnosis of the problem with his people in Israel, is that they are committing idolatry. They're worshiping things other than him. They're putting their trust in things that are not him. And, and he listed a few examples. Baal was a very famous god that was worshipped by the surrounding nations of Israel. He's the weather god. He was kind of like an ancient Near Eastern Zeus. He often had a lightning bolt in his hand in the statues that we find of Baal. And so he was a weather god, and it was an agricultural society. So instead of trusting in God for provision, we're going to invoke the weather god. So hopefully we'll have rain and crops. So people were worshiping him instead of God. The starry hosts, people were getting into astrology, thinking that, you know, I'm going to learn something about this life and this world by looking at the movements of the stars, not by turning to the Lord. And then Molech is this other... Uh, deity that was um, widely worshipped in the world that surrounded Israel. Uh, it was a particularly awful one that was uh, involved with child sacrifice. And so people in Israel are doing this. And God is saying, that's not going to stand. You've broken your covenant with me. You've walked away from me. And I think when we read this stuff, our response should not be, wow, those ancient Israelites, they're some bad people. You know, they really blew it. I think 
these occasions are times to sort of turn inward and ask ourselves some tough questions. You know, what are we worshiping instead of God? We might not think of it as worship, but what are we trusting more than him? What sort of altars, invisible altars, are we building in our life that we go to for guidance or uh, trying to sort things out in our mind or in our world? You know, what's our version of looking to the stars instead of God? Mercifully, even though God is a just God and he's angry over all of this, he still loves his people. He still leaves us, loves us when we uh, turn away from him. And so he's always wanting to draw us home. Skip if you're reading to chapter 2, verse 3. This verse really kind of um, sums up some of what's said in the middle part of the book here. Zephaniah 2, 3. God says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Uh, Circle, if you're taking notes, the three instances of the word seek in that one verse. God is always inviting us back, no matter how far we've gone. Seek him, he says. Seek righteousness. That means seek a a right relationship with him. No matter how long you've been away or how far you think you've wandered, seek him, seek righteousness, seek humility. Understand that he's God and you're not and you need him. God is always waiting for us to come home. He's postured to show grace if we do. That's what this is saying. So let's skip to chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses here in which God contrasts himself with the leaders of Jerusalem who have gone the other direction. And in these few verses, uh, the city of Jerusalem is personified. So it it refers to Jerusalem as a she. It says, um, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Highlight that. He does no wrong. Morning. By morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail, yet the unrighteous know no shame. So he's painting a picture of Jerusalem and how far it's gone. Their leaders have abandoned God. In fact, God is describing them as sort of predators. You know, they're like lions. They're like these wolves. They lead people astray. The priests themselves have profaned the temple by allowing worship of these other gods in this space that's supposed to be sacred just for the Lord. These leaders of the city can't be trusted, God is saying. You know, our, our, our uh, time, I think, today is uh, not that different from Zephaniah's in some ways. You know, our, our culture Our national leaders, our prominent thinkers, our famous entertainers, all of it. We're all in a state of upheaval about what truth is, what matters. Uh, If people of faith should sort of go with the flow of some of these changes or really confront these changes, and if so, what does it look like to confront in a Christ-like way? We see political pendulums swinging back and forth. We see religious leaders arguing with each other about whether policy can lead to spiritual revival. And it sometimes, I think, feels like we're stuck between sort of God's priorities and the world's priorities that we're in. 
And there's a lot of noise and a lot of uncertainty. And so we've got to cut through that noise and know what God's eternal plan is. Because if we know what God's eternal plan is, it gives us clarity and hope and assurance in the present. Because God does no wrong. That's what Zephaniah just said. He is trustworthy. And so what his plan is for the future really matters for us to know. It was the plan for the future in Zephaniah's time and in our time. So I want to read uh, a little bit about what that is. Uh, skip down to verse 9, Zephaniah 3, 9. God says this. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble, and then highlight this sentence, the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. God is saying he's going to put everything right eventually. He's going to purify his people so that they worship him. And they're going to one day serve him shoulder to shoulder. What a beautiful image that is. The arrogant will be gone. Those leading his people astray will be gone. The humble will remain. Those who acknowledge that God is God. And despite the cultural and social, political, religious upheaval of then, Zephaniah's time, and now, despite all of that, there will be a remnant who trusts in the Lord. And this idea of remnant is so important. Really big idea in the Old Testament. It's also picked up in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in the first century, uh, he was uh, from a Jewish background, and he was processing and wrestling with the idea that, you know, a lot of Jewish people rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. So what does that mean? A lot of people had questions about this. And he wrote about this in Romans 11. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read just a few verses. Paul said this, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. There's a remnant, Paul said. And who he was referring to was the Jewish people like himself who had placed their trust in Christ and who had remained faithful to the Lord. They were this long-promised remnant. I want to give a definition of remnant. Um, I think we probably all have a sense of it. But remnant, um, the biblical words used, indicate a small remainder that continues to exist. A small remainder that continues to exist. And Paul was saying, there is a small remainder in my day of Israel that still exists and has placed their faith in the Lord and has remained faithful. And they've been saved by grace through Jesus. They're they're the faithful remnant, not because of their hard work, not because they're highly moral. As Paul said, they're a faithful remnant because of God's grace. 
and this new thing that Jesus created, the church, would be this wonderful hybrid of uh, Gentiles, non-Jews who never knew God, and the faithful remnant of Jews. So these two groups with little in common would be spiritually joined in the body of Christ, the church. This was God's plan all along, a plan nobody would have guessed. And you know what? God works wonders with remnants. I think sometimes we think of remnants, I know I do, as kind of, you know, leftovers. It's like the scraps, right? The undesirable portion that wasn't used up. But God sees remnant and sees just what he needs for his plan. Jesus, as he walked the earth, saw men and women at the fringe of society who had been completely overlooked, the remnant overlooked. And he said, these are going to be my disciples. They're going to be the caretakers of my message. Maybe you feel like a remnant sometimes of yourself, like you're just spent, just worn down, a shadow of yourself with little to offer. You know, if you feel that way, God sees you and he sees someone who he loves and has a purpose for. Jesus uses remnants in powerful ways. He, he saw a few loaves and fish and said, I can feed the multitude with this. This is, this is plenty. He specializes in using the small remainder. <laughs> he built his church on the small remainder of Israel that believed in Christ and the few disciples who stuck with him after he was crucified. He said, I can build my church with you. And he did. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, beautifully describes what God built, this union uh, between Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ and the internal implications of that. He describes that in Ephesians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. So if you're taking notes, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. Um, It's right after Galatians, right before Philippians. We're going to go through this, and I'm going to highlight a few things for you. It's going to really help us understand God's ultimate plan and purpose. Paul is speaking primarily to Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, who were historically not part of God's people. But now they are. (laughs) And look, I want you to see what he says. He says in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, Remember... That at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Highlight those two words, brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Circle the word peace. I'm going to have you circle a few other times. This word shows up a bunch in this passage. Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Highlight that, one new humanity. Out of the two, thus making peace. Circle that one. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God. Highlight that. Reconcile both of them to God. 
Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Circle those two examples of peace. He preached peace to you who were far, peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Highlight those two words, fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Highlight that last phrase, members of his household. You see the magnitude of what Jesus did. I mean, look at the language Paul used. Those who are far have been brought near. One humanity has been made out of these two groups that were so different and at odds. We are all now fellow citizens through Christ, members of God's household, and we've been given peace through Jesus. The faithful remnant of Israel is not just the leftovers. They carried the torch of faith through the generations. They would serve him and put their faith in Christ when he finally came. And that remnant would serve shoulder to shoulder with the Gentiles. Former pagans from a very different background brought together into the church, reconciled to God and with each other through Jesus united by their common faith in Christ and their experience of God's grace. And now we stand in 2018, members of that same body of Christ, beneficiaries of Jesus' work on the cross, not only to save us, but to unify us, to bring us together, to weave that beautiful tapestry of his people, to give us a taste of what heaven will look like. You know, John, Jesus' disciple, got a glimpse of heaven in Revelation. I want to read a few verses of what he saw. Revelation 7, 9 to 10, it says this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, who is representative of Jesus in Revelation. It says every nation, tribe, people, language, standing together in God's presence, worshiping Jesus, enjoying his presence with them, peace as God always intended, life free from pain and division and confusion and all the upheaval of this life. You know, God was whispering this future to the people of Israel through Zephaniah. He shouted it through Jesus. And we will stand and worship God in heaven with each other one day and experience life with, with all of, of the faithful throughout the generations. The people in North Korea right now, Christians languishing in prison because of their faith, we will worship alongside of them. We will know them. The first century martyrs who gave their life for their faith who died to, for example, pass on the scriptures to us. We will worship alongside of them, live life alongside of them. We will sing songs with the children in Honduras who are being reached for Christ through the work of hope for Honduras. They'll be there. People in Austria right now who are being drawn to the Lord through the work of the missionaries that we support there, Nate and Bethany Johnson, they will be there. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with Christians who right now live in India, a country where 99% of the population does not believe what they believe. 
and they endure all kinds of frustration and and sometimes persecution, they will be there and we'll live life with them. The World Vision kids that we sponsor who encounter Christ, whose pictures maybe are on your fridge. I know we have a couple at home that we sponsor. They'll be there. And yes, loved ones who we've lost will be there. And we'll be there not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but by God's grace. That's why we'll be there. In spite of humanity's continuous attempts to walk away from the Lord, turning away from God, he still loves us. He still loves us. That never changes. He made us for himself, and he made a way for us to arrive at that future, eternal life with him and each other, heaven, if you want to use that word. And the way to get there is Jesus, faith in him, salvation in him by his grace. That's the way. I was texting with someone uh, this week from Real Hope uh, talking about some of these things, and and she wrote something I thought was so insightful, so I'm just going to read it. She wrote, God's story is about the great lengths God has gone to in order to reconcile his chosen people to him. By sacrificing his only son, Jesus is the ultimate invitation, the biggest open door, the most unconditional welcome ever offered. Amen. I'm going to close with something that C.S. Lewis wrote. Um, If you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis, he's arguably the most famous theologian of the 20th century, prolific author. Uh, He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, which was uh, a fictional story, but uh, based on lots of biblical truth, and um, there's all kinds of Christ um, figures in, in the stories. Uh, at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he gets to a passage that describes how heaven must feel. Uh, not what it's like, necessarily. Um, we're not really sure exactly what it's going to be like, but I think we have a sense of how it will feel. And he does a great job, I think, of helping us understand how it must feel. So at the end of Narnia, these characters arrive in the new Narnia, which is heaven. And this character says these words, which I just think are so, uh, so right on what it must feel like. This character says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then Aslan, the lion who represents God, says to these arrivals, you do not yet look as happy as I mean you to be. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And then as the book closes, C.S. Lewis, as the narrator, says this, All their life in this world had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And this is the eternal life that we are invited to through Christ. That is the future God has planned for those who know him his faithful remnant.